I want to thank all 18 of you for staying for the last talk. I appreciate that. I actually was about to leave an hour ago, and then I heard that Neil Patrick Harris was going to give our, the talk. And so I decided to stay and see if he really remembered everything from his childhood, and apparently he did pretty well. So, didn't that guy look like Doogie Hauser? <laughs> Sounded like him too, right? <laughs> all right. Um, Okay, well, thanks for staying. I'm going to talk about neutrophilic skin disorders uh, over the next two and a half hours. And, and, um, and uh, you know, I wish they had done this earlier. He would give me more time. But I just want to start off with this slide. This is the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. This is about a year ago. I was in the parking lot uh, of a store in my hometown, and I saw this on the back of someone's car. Uh, each day is a gift, a melanoma survivor. And I've never seen, I've seen lots of breast cancer ribbons and a lot, lot, lot of different things, but I've never seen one like this, and maybe, maybe you have it in your town. But, um, you know, I think it speaks a lot to what we do, uh, giving people uh, hope and giving people the gift of life. If you make a diagnosis, that can change their life. And I really hope, uh, this is just going to be a kind of a, a social message before we get into all the, all the text. You know, I, I love what I do, and I know so many of you do, because I know a lot of you that are, that are here. And I want to see us as dermatology PAs not only be the most educated and the most competent and doing things on the level of our, our supervisors as much as we can, I want us to be the most joy-filled and the most content group of folks that do what we do. You know, because Obamacare and um, changes in health care and just changes in life, even outside of those things, you know, those are things that are generating a, um, that are creating a generation of anxiety, people consumed by fear. And, um, and my, my message right up front is that let's, let's do everything we do well with compassion, and let's treat every day as a gift, even if you haven't survived something like this. And, and when something like this happens, I had a melanoma in situ cut off my arm 18 months ago, and so, you know, I was pretty thankful for that. And... Um, but I, I want to be at a point where I don't have to have something done to wake up every day and say, it is a gift to be alive today and use the skills uh, that I'm able to use to bless others. So, Now, um, a lot of Atlanta or Georgia PAs and friends are here. I don't know how you go from this seven years ago to this, but a lot of people have asked about my kids, and those are my three kids, Ben and Kate and Margaret. And yes, I've had several questions. I added the slide. Our last name is Italian. And so I'm trying to get my kids to grasp their Italian heritage. But really, my mom is Irish and my dad's Italian. So we've had some Irish blood in us. And I want you to see this Irish sunbather. Can you see right there? Can you believe that? Yes, not her, the other one. Yes, future, hopefully, melanoma survivor sticker on the car. On oh, that one. All right, so neutrophilic skin disorders. Uh, pretty informal. I, was, I actually uh, limped through the uh, surgery workshop on Wednesday. I was the first person to speak and the last. That's what my wife pointed on the phone. You're, you're the alpha and the omega of the conference. So we'll talk about neutrophilic skin disorders. I have no conflicts, no offshore bank accounts, no, no ties to the Italian mafia, no known superpowers, and I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. Every medicine I will discuss treating these disorders is off-label. I mean, he, he mentioned off-label, off-label. I mean, just pretty much everything that, we, that uh, we're going to talk about is not, not treated for this. But I see thousands of patients with uh, neutrophilic skin disorders every year. I mean, you guys too, right? No? You know, Mondays, I, it's my sweets day. 
Uh, Tuesday is completely devoted to pyodermic gangrene ocean patients. You know, I try to keep it at 50 on those Tuesdays. And, you know, my half day on Friday is all neutrophilic ecron hydradenitis patients, you know, because they don't have quite as many as the others. No, I mean, the fact is, is that we go a long time before seeing patients with these disorders, unless you're in a more academic center. I'll tell you one way to become more academic, uh, like an academic referral center, is start taking Medicaid in your office. Because since so, uh, so few of your partners do, you become this great referral center for patients that no one else will see, and you get to see a lot of interesting things. And that's, that, that's, a, that's one, one way to care for a patient population that equally needs as much care, and you'll see a lot of things that uh, would have been more widely dispersed over your population base, but if you're one of the few who takes it, you see a lot more. So, Osler, the father of internal medicine, said, he who knows syphilis knows internal medicine. Dr. Jason Smith used this quote yesterday from Tom Habith. He who knows SKs knows pigmented lesions. And if you meet Tom Habith, he will tell you his name is Habith and not Habith. And he who knows neutrophilic skin disorders knows about it because they're forced to write an article or do a presentation on the subject. Okay? All right? Because in, in dermatology, if you haven't heard of something, you'll never diagnose it. And it's as simple as that. It's that way in all the medicine. If you've never heard of it, it never, it's not on your radar. And so just having things on your radar makes you think back, and that's why we gather together. So we're going to learn, hopefully in this talk, to just not look at something, but start to look for things that are underlying behind it, okay? Because intuition in our patients leads to this being the culprit of half of what walks in, right? Everybody thinks everything's a spider bite. So the classic neutrophilic disorders... Sweets, pyodermic gangrenosum, subcorneal pustular dermatosis, erythema elevatum, dinudium. These are the ones that we hear these big long names and, you know, makes us sound impressive if we can say them. But um, what, let's look at a couple of these. And I just want to say, if you look up neutrophilic skin disorders, I just took these five textbooks. I feel like I'm, there's so few people here. I have this echo going on. There's no, no heads to absorb the, the reverb here. <laughs> Is bouncing off Coe's uh, head. Oh, you know what? Before I get into this, I meant to do this. These are the best quotes of the conference I've heard. Okay. Did, did Joe uh, Caposco, did he leave? He was just... All right, Joe, you had the best quote of the conference. He was talking to Hillary Baldwin over here about whether or not... Joe was talking to Hillary Baldwin, I'm quoting you, Joe, about how she deals with patients who say they're going to be abstinent and, you know, should they get put on birth control and things like that. Joe says, I, I tell my patients, I know you're not having sex right now because I'm talking with you. But once, <laughs> but once I leave the room, all bets are off. It's a <laughs> and now Hillary Baldwin just loved that. I, that's going to be nationwide. You just wait. You just wait. All right. And then Dr. Baldwin, what a great quote. If they farted, they got a colonoscopy. Remember that? Remember that? Okay. That was good. Dr. Weiss showed us a picture of a man who was found, to, uh, through testing, to have a, a profound and impressive allergy to oatmeal. And then his quote was, unfortunately, he worked in an oatmeal factory. You know? <laughs> and then earlier today, uh, Don Ritchie, the, uh, the gracious, his gracious presentation of his life of service. If you guys, if you missed that talk today. Uh, but what a, what a funny moment when he looked at the picture. He put up a picture of a woman who had sun damage on one side versus the other. And he says, look at this picture of this woman. Then he looked and he says, that kind of looks like a man. 
I'm not sure which. Well, look at the picture of this person, you know. <laughs> he wasn't sure which. But I, I, I tell you, and I, I know I'm, I'm philosophizing here because I'm the last person, and I know I've got a, a short enough material to, to do this. But, um, man, if you, if you, you, those who did see uh, him, isn't that who you want to be? You want to be someone that's been doing this for a long time, still loves it at, at that phase in their life, is dedicated to making an impact in people's lives, and uh, is not just heading off to the um, golf course, you know, so, so to speak. And, and I'm not meaning to be judgmental because uh, I like to play golf too, but, you know, um, but there's just a difference sometimes that, 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 that you'll see. And that, that's kind of what I was talking about when I was talking about treating every day as a gift. So if we look at the textbooks that I have, at least on, on my shelf, the Dermatological Signs of Internal Disease, Kaylin and Aritza, it's been out a long time. You'll find sweets and PG in the chapter titled Cutaneous Manifestations of Leukemia. Okay, that's where you're going to find that. Andrews, the 11th edition and the 10th, turn the chapter and you're going to find these two conditions, sweets and PG, in erythema and urticaria. And there's one little section there called reactive neutrophilic dermatoses in this chapter. All right? So are these diseases urticarial? Are they related to erythema? Are they leukemias? Okay. Textbook of Derm from Rook, you know, the four-volume the four series, kind of the Bible of, of, uh, of Derm, puts sweets, PG, erythema, elevatum dinudium in the chapter called Cutaneous Vasculitis. That book classifies them vasculitic. Cutaneous Medicine, Provost and Flint's book. Sweets has a chapter called Perineoplastic Dermatosis, related to cancers. And PG has its own chapter, the only book I found where PG had its own chapter, and it's stuck in between hepatitis and ulcerative colitis. So you can see how difficult it can be by these folks who know a lot more than I do um, on how to classify these things. Dermatology, you know, the big two-volume series by Bologna and Arizzo, they actually have a chapter called Neutrophilic Disorders. Just right out. That's a, that's, thank goodness, a chapter just on that. And in that chapter, they only address these four things. Sweets, PG, Bichette's, and bowel bypass arthritis syndrome. Okay? What happened to subcorneal pustular dermatosis? What happened to EED? What happened to a lot of other ones? Well, they didn't decide to include in that chapter. So is it leukemia? Is it related to urticaria? Is it vasculitis? Is it related to malignancies outside of leukemia? Is it a sign of inflammatory bowel disease? Is it drug-induced? There are so many overlaps with neutrophilic disorders in their presentation, in their remission rates, in the way that they're treated, that uh, it is a mixed bag sometimes. In fact, it was this type of correlation and someone who had a mind to really view things at such a vantage point over the top of it that Bernie Ackerman had. If you guys are new in Durham, Bernie Ackerman was really one of the largest forces in dermatopathology. Then when you get Bernie Ackerman's textbook on dermatopathology, he doesn't group anything together. His whole textbook is alphabetical order of diseases because he says, I just simply cannot any longer after all my decades of doing dermpath say that this goes with this and this goes with this. And his book is related. It's just put out in alphabetical order all the, all the disease states. So if there is a common theme, neutrophilic disorders, spectrum of conditions mediated by neutrophils, right, typically associated with underlying diseases, which can be inflammatory bowel or can be malignancies. So what is a neutrophil and who cares if it infiltrates? You know, when I started PA school in 1995, 
I'm not even sure I could say the word neutrophil. Okay? As a matter of fact, for you guys who are not from the South, there are a lot of terms in the South that may mean something else. For instance, the medical term bacteria really means the back door to the cafeteria. Okay? To dilate means to live longer. You dilate. You get it, dilate. You fester. You fester. You're faster than someone else. A node is, I knew that. I know that. Of course, seizures are Roman emperor. Labor pain, getting hurt at work. Come on, that's a good one. I spent some time on some of these. Some of these are from patients. Some of these I've been working on. How about B9? What you be after eight? And if you're a tumor, it's one plus one more, which to all you math majors out there means a benign tumor is actually 11. B9, B9, and a tumor two more later. But a neutrophil is a type of white blood cell. It's a granulocyte. When you look at it underneath, when it's, it stains neutrally. It doesn't stain in one direction or the other. Um, it's got a neutral staining. It has little tiny granules in it that stain all the ribosomes that are inside the cells. And we've got several different types of granulocytes, right? Your basophils, your eosinophils, and your neutrophils. But, uh, and these neutrophils, are, they have a lot. Their major role is, is phagocytosis. They're going to go out and try to consume bacteria. So they're seen in infectious processes. First thing that arrives high numbers in our blood system produced in the bone marrow. As soon as there's a, an injury to your skin or an infectious agent introduced into the body, this stuff is going to receive the message. It gets the phone call. The red phone goes off. The bat light goes up. And that's, you know, CD5, complement 5, interferon 8, all these things that go out there. And neutrophils immediately exit the bloodstream into the tissue or into the space where it, it senses that. Okay, and what happens, the reason we call these polys and PMNs, you may remember this, is because the nucleus becomes segmented into three to five little pieces. All right, and it follows the path all the way down to granulocytes, neutrophils, eosinophils, and basophils. If it's immature, it's just band-like. If it has more time to mature, it's going to segment out, right? So an immature neutrophil is a band. A mature neutrophil is a PMN or a poly, right? And so do you remember, am I going back too far to PA school, whenever you had a left shift? Who knows what a left shift is? Got any left shifters in here? Right, is that one side of the political aisle? No. Left shift means what? A predominance of immature neutrophils. Why did it go to the left? Why does it tend left? It's an awfully personal question. Well, because historically when they drew this thing out right here, and the oldest ones they have from the oldest anatomy and blood books, they had bands drawn on the left and mature neutrophils on the right. And so as they went through and wrote down the numbers, they said there's more on the left than there are on the right. And that's how we got the name of a left-sided shift during the acute phase of an infection, right? Okay, so that's a picture of it, polysegmented. And so when this kid comes in, he's got a carbuncle, which cultures out MRSA, and he's starting to have a cellulitic response and inflammation around it. Is that going to have a lot of neutrophils in it? Yeah, it is. So, if neutrophils show up at the site of infections to attack invaders and defend the host, I guess the lecture really is called non-infectious neutrophilic skin disorders because sweets and pyodermic ganglionosis and all the ones listed have nothing to do with you having an infection at that site. Now, that may be a secondary response to something going on inside. So it's non-infectious, right? So here's all the non-infectious neutrophilic skin disorders. 19 of them listed there. So that's not just the three or four that we classically talk about. So if it's not infectious, 
and it can cause many things, what happened to sweets and pyogenic gangrenosum? Because this, if you saw that list, looks nothing like leukocytoclastic vasculitis, which is a non-infectious neutrophilic disorder, right? Medium cell vasculitis is as well. So maybe if it's non-infectious, where the neutrophils end up in the skin helps us differentiate it, whether it's epidermal or dermal or diffuse or sparse or superficial or deep, okay? And that's, and that's the case. So if it's epidermal, non-infectious, neutrophilic infiltrate, almost everything's seen in the epidermis. You start seeing these start popping up. And you guys remember from the talk we got, if you're here this morning, on the uh, DIF? Remember he said when there is a separation of the blister supra-basilar up into the epidermis and it separates, that's indicative of pemphigus, right? When it's sub-basilar underneath, that's all your bullous pemphigoid, you know, uh, entities. When it's supra in the epidermis, well, this is a, you're going to see neutrophilic infiltration in the epidermis. Well, it's an IgA form of pemphigus. Matches up with the same, same mindset. Superficial pustular psoriasis, yeah, those are sterile superficial pustules. That's a neutrophilic infiltrate in the epidermis. Non-infectious, right? And that's a list which you can add a few to, and that's where you've got it. So really the title of the talk is, I know I'm, I haven't even gotten to the talk yet, it's non-infectious neutrophilic skin disorders where the neutrophils are found primarily in the, in the dermis, not in the epidermis. Okay? So if we look at that, Okay, now wait a second. I still see sweets, pyogenic machettes, and, and bowel. Those are the four things listed inside uh, Rizzo's book, you know, dermatitis. What about all these other things? And why do we still have vasculitis popping up on all of these things? Well, it's because when you see vasculitic changes, dust, and leukocytoclasis, that helps separate it even further. And this condition, which we've mentioned a couple of times, EED, it is a form of chronic relapsing leukocytic vasculitis. They get these silvery, gold-colored, sometimes rust-colored, plaque-like lesions, sometimes in the cartilage of the ear, more common on the back of the hand and the extremities. And you'll see right here, it's regarded as a chronic, low-grade, fibrosing form of leukocytoclastic vasculitis. No fever, goes over several decades, it's rare. But this is not in, in, the, in the chapter with sweets in PG. Why is that? Because it has vasculitis as part of it, Okay. And so that's why leukocytoclastic vasculitis is, is not the same as, or not a, a form of sweets. So, welcome to my talk. I'm giving a talk on, the SDPA thought this title is too long, non-infectious neutrophilic skin disorders where the neutrophils are found primarily in the dermis, but there's no significant evidence of vasculitis. That's a description of PG and sweets and the, and the main, main ones. Do you understand why, though? Because if you were going to give a chapter, if someone asked you to list everything you know about uh, every disorder with neutrophilic infiltration, boy, it's everything that is infectious or inflammatory, all right? And that's how it's broken down in, in the Bologna's book. Right here, neutrophilic dermatosis, non-infectious. Is it epidermal? Look over here. Is it found primarily in the dermis? Okay. And is it, does it have vasculitis? Yes. Does it not have vasculitis? Over here. This is in all of these slides are inside uh, the, the um, handout that, that you got, okay? All right, so all this starts off with Sweet, all right? Robert Sweet first described this. He just died in 2001, um, but he described this in 1964, eight women who all had significant upper respiratory infections and, and later, within one to three weeks later, developed these tender um, plaque-like erosions 
with central ulceration, indurated pseudofasciculation. He put out a paper. He called it acute febrile neutrophilic dermatosis. And actually, in the paper, he called it gone uh, button disease because that was the last name of the first two women that he saw with it. Okay? So it was a few years later, 1968, that it was confirmed in another study, and that body of dermatologists that put out that second study confirming his findings called it sweet syndrome, all right? Classic lesion right here. Now, it's hard to sometimes tell. If you guys seen sweets or seen pyodermic gangrenosum, these look very similar to each other, don't they? Kind of this dusky appearance, sharp uh, border of demarcation, central ulceration. Sometimes there's more undermining seen with, uh, with PG. It's on the back of the knuckle. They can be very tender. They can be febrile. They can be sick. They can have a lot of malaise. They can have tiny pustules that will pop up in the middle of this. Pseudofasciculation looks like it's a tense blister, but really you don't get a lot out of it because it's such a... It's such a remember, this is where? Where is it located? Primarily, where's the infiltrate? In the dermis, right? And so it's all that inflammation is swelling up. It looks like a big blister, but it's dermal, right? In general, as I, I teach folks who rotate with me, in general, if something's epidermal, when it's generally safe. Things that are dermal aren't. You know, I'm not talking about this particular disorder. SKs, molluscum, warts, all epidermal processes, right? That's why we don't freeze things that look like moles because they're dermal. Urticaria is dermal. You get a swell, so you get that rise in the skin. And that's what you're seeing with sweets and PG lesions, all right? And um, so look at this. This is a patient of mine who came in. I'm going to tell you about him. But what do you do with this? Look at this. It's extraordinarily painful, all right? And... Um, ulcerations in the center. He had lesions on his uh, elbows, across his arms, across his chest. Okay? Is it considered a cutaneous marker of systemic disease? Absolutely it is. And that's what you've got to figure out is what I had to figure out with him. Is there something else going on with him? All right? Because we know that we have four classifications for sweets. Malignancy associated. That tells you you've got to look for cancers. Drug-induced. That tells you there's a big list of drugs. I don't think he was pregnant, but that's the case too. And where's it? Classic. And classic can be associated with other autoimmune and inflammatory disorders. Just let me ask, anyone uh, been dealing with patients with sweet syndrome in the last two years? Okay. And what were some of the reasons? Did you figure out the etiology? No, oh, no, no head shakes. Lupus. Okay, so it was concomitant with lupus. All right. Anybody know what's the most commonly associated problem? Malignancy-wise with this. We'll, we'll go from malignancy. Leukemia. Acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, is a most closely associated. 20% of cases of sweets are associated with that. Okay? Uh, also, a large association also with PG with ulcer of colitis and Crohn's. All right? A lot of blood disorders. Infections. Obviously, it was uh, Sweet who saw eight women with upper respiratory infections, so the number one cause of Sweet's is upper respiratory infection. Okay? Vaccinations have been implicated, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel, cancers of the bowel, urine, breast. Pregnancy somehow is included in that, and then a lot of different drugs, anti-inflammatory, antibiotics. Uh, interesting, the granulocyte colony stimulating factor, which is used to treat uh, leukemias, is actually one of the medicines that's known to stimulate sweets uh, in, in some cases when people go on it. 36-year-old female, widespread nodules, plaques, confirmed as sweets, development of acute myelogenous leukemia. Okay? Signs and symptoms, not all these things, but you can see them up here, tonsillitis, if it's upper UI. If they have a, a bowel infection, then they'll have symptoms of that. They do have peripheral uh, leukocytosis. 
but not a left shift like it's an acute infection. So 86% of women with a URI, mean age is 56, more common in Japan and Asia than anywhere else, associated with saw cord uh, and erythema nodosum, may precede cancer by six years. This is a big point, because when you shake your head, no, 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 we never found a cause. A large percentage of those patients where they had no cause found at found out, they did a study and went back and tried to find those patients and found out what happened to them 10 years later, significant portion of them did end up having an internal malignancy, which makes them think that perhaps sweets was the initial presentating, present, presentation or marker of that. So these folks, this guy that has sweets, which I'll tell you up front, was a reaction to Septra, okay? Still follow him closely, even though he's four years out from it now. Still tell him, you've got to be getting your prostate exam, are you doing all your stuff? Are we getting blood work on you? This, you know, I'm just letting them know. There's, there's a, it's a risk factor. You don't want to scare folks, but you just want to know that, that uh, it can, like six years, up to six years later, they're seeing a predominance of cancer, much higher in people with sweets than the general population. If it is cancer, it's most often males with mucosal involvement, okay? So if, if it is sweets, you've got to have a biopsy that's, that's a slam dunk for it. And then the minor criteria, two or more, preceded by an infection, a vaccine, a malignancy, or something going on that's simultaneously, fever, constitutional symptoms with the had it, leukocytosis, excellent response to systemic steroids is also an indication that would point you towards it as well, okay? So how are you going to treat it? Uh, it's obvious. You guys, the ones who've seen this before, you're going to try to find the cause. Remove the offending drug, shotgun antibiotics, just because you can't just say, well, Eight out of ten folks, it's preceded by URI. They just put everybody on antibiotics that has not shown to improve the course of therapy unless you can prove that they have a strept infection or a bowel infection. With a, when, and interestingly enough, that uh, uracenia is uh, the one that's seen the most. Check for hepatitis. Check for cancers. Okay, and it's not an indication for labor inducement. All right. If it comes up in pregnancy, it's usually in the second or third trimester, early third trimester, or mid to late second trimester. All right. And I'm not going to go through this. You're going to find that all these disorders are pretty much treated with cortisones, high dose. I don't think anyone starts with any less than 60 milligrams, anywhere between 60 and 100 milligrams, based on the person's weight, but you can do the exact calculations. And we don't taper any slower than going down 10 milligrams per week. So if they're going to start at 60 milligrams, they're going to be on it for six weeks, minimum. Right? You may even extend out that 10 milligram dose even longer once they get down to it. All right? You're going to start at 80 milligrams, and they're going to be on it for a minimum of eight weeks. All right, and potassium iodide has been, been helpful with this too. I don't know if you guys use potassium iodide for erythema nodosum or any other skin disorders. Anybody use it? Supersaturated SSKI? I use it for uh, erythema nodosum with good success. Three drops on the tongue three times a day and keep increasing the drops every third day to a maximum of seven drops three times a day. It works great for erythema nodosum. You can put them on endomethacin for that too. But if they just keep coming in tender, um, these tender uh, paniculatic uh, plaques in the legs, it's a good treatment for that. Colchicine's on there, endomethacin, cyclosporin, dapson. You see what I'm saying, off-label? None of these medicines are indicated for use of sweet syndrome, okay? But uh, they're all used and have been used and extensively written about over, over the last several decades. So this guy was being treated for MRSA. It was sent to me because they thought he was having an allergic reaction to septra. And then as I began to talk to him more about it, I said, wait a second. This, I told him right off the bat, this is not, a, this is not, this would be a very unusual drug eruption um, because it looks so much like something that I thought was either pyroderma gamernoxum or sweets. It was very tender. I mean, he wouldn't let you get within a foot of his hands because of how, how tender it was. And then the biopsy, we were able to numb it and get a biopsy in. 
and uh, did a full workup on cancer and everything else on him, found nothing, and had to conclude that it was septra-induced. Now, what's interesting, you read in the literature, it doesn't mean they have an allergy to septra or whatever drug it was, because uh, tetracyclines are on the list, too. Should be able to take it again and not have sweets come back up. That's usually the case, but I have one case where a woman was, had sweets two times, both times related to morphine. Okay? All right, I put them on prednisone 60 after seven days. This is one week. You see how the crust formation, the healing's taking place. All right? This is on his elbow. This is one week later with the prednisone 60. Here he is three weeks out. Look at the healing now. Look at that. Hamburger meat coming down to this. That's three weeks out. He's now on 30 a day. He continued his taper, and he got better, and I actually have lost him to follow up. Okay, the surgeon calls, general surgeon, the, our best, the best surgeon in our town, calls and says, I have someone you have to see today. I said, okay, we'll send her over. And this is what she came in, the door like, like this. Exquisitely tender lesions, had had low-grade fever for several days. He had no idea what it was. He thought at first maybe she was having an infection. These things popped up all over her body. Some were a little a few days older than others, but they decimated very, very quickly on her chest wall. She excoriated at them a little bit, small amount of pruritus associated with these in her Look at her lower legs. Look at this on the back. That's when I said maybe spider bite. Well, no way. Look at the central ulceration, sharp mark, uh, this indemnous appearance of that. Look at the back of the hands. Does that look like the previous gentleman right there? Looks just very, very similar, doesn't it? I had spots exactly like this six years ago when I had a hernia. Um, when I had knee surgery, she was a hernia repair this time. Long story short, with going through her chart and everything else, we ended up figuring out it was morphine. That, that was inducing sweets in, in, in this particular lady. I think, right? Still say, get your mammogram every year, have your blood work done every year, have your exams done every year to make sure that we don't see this as an early marker of her having an internal malignancy, okay? Two weeks after prednisone, look at the difference. So, you know, I, and yes, I have had some patients uh, put on cyclosporine with prednisone at the same time they did, didn't respond to to the prednisone, but usually always prednisone is, is, your, is your go-to drug with all the neutrophilic disorders. It, that's just, look at the back of the leg. This is actually a picture after, um, after two weeks as well. Okay? So sweets disease is related to pyridermic gangrenosum in many ways because of how they look underneath the skin and in many ways because the treatments are the same. But they do have a little bit of a different presentation sometimes. But it's hard on physical exam. Look at this. This lesion comes back by more than one derm- uh, dermatopathologist saying this is more consistent with pyridermic gangrenosum and this is more consistent with sweets, but they say it's got to have clinical coordination. These don't tend to be tender. They not tend to be associated with, uh, with fever. Don't have a malaise period ahead of time like sweets does, okay? But they look a lot alike if you just had two, two pictures showing you that, okay? The cause of pyridromyosin is largely unknown. It's global. There are things that can initiate it, can start off as an ulcer, can have an undermined border, can be purulent, but sterile, vegetative at the base, just look at the pictures. You can even bring the lights down on me a little bit. It'd be good for these up here. You bring those lights down. Okay? But here's something I want you to take away with. In PG, the abdomen, the buttocks, and the lower extremities are most commonly involved. All right? Sometimes on the hands, which I showed you several on the back of the hands picture-wise, but it's very rare up on the face, the neck, and the chest. And that is a, a good point because sweets is most commonly found on the face and neck and the upper extremities. All right? And pyridermic gangrenosum is most commonly found on the legs, the buttocks, and the lower abdomen. So they have a different distribution. 
associated with PG, inflammatory bowel disease, 20 to 30%, arthritis, myelogenous leukemia here as well, all right, drug-induced, 10 to 15%, all right, classic ulcerative, which is interesting, it's, it's neither pyodermic and it's neither gangrenous, it doesn't have either one, it doesn't form, uh, you know, non-sterile pustules and it doesn't form gangrene, but that's, that's how it got its name. Because in 1930, uh, Cokerman, if you, may, you guys know the, the Cokerman method of putting on tar for psoriatic treatment that was named after him, that he pioneered, well, he wrote a lot about this disease. And uh, he propagated the idea that this was a, an infectious agent that we had not yet identified that caused it every time. There was a bacteria that we didn't have any way of figuring out what it was. Of course, he's been proven to be wrong, but the name is stuck. And he called it this pyodermic gangrenous and leading towards gangrene. But uh, it was just a, a wrong postulation back in 1930. So if you have a more bullous form of PG, then you have a greater uh, association with potentially being related to a malignancy, okay? PG associated with myelogenous leukemia is more frequently bullous and superficial, generally not extending into subcutaneous and facial tissues, okay? All right, 51-year-old. Now, I got this from Dermatlas, and then I sent in to Dermatlas to talk to the physician, and I think, let's see the next one, yeah, Allison Young. I put her name down here, Allison Young. I don't know who Allison Young is. I know she's a dermatologist, but I just got a response back on email. I said, look, you've put these photos up uh, that I've seen online on Derm Atlas. Is okay to use your picture, yeah? Well, tell me, tell me the course of this, you know, because it's just underneath a slide deck that's listed as pyodermic gang- gangrenosum. So this is a little bit of the history. 51-year-old woman, history of ulcerative colitis, right? 20 to 25% of PGs are related to ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. She had all kind of inflammatory, autoimmune-appearing type things going on. Tender fluctuant nodules on her legs, developed a fever, elevated white count, numerous blood cultures, chest x-rays, all failed to show any infection at all. It was biopsy three times, right? When she first came in with one spot, then when uh, Dr. Young saw her with a, three or four spots, and then finally when this thing ulcerated, they did another one. The third one was finally consistent with pyodermic gangrenosum. She put this patient on three rounds of IVIG, 35 grams per round, and it's completely resolved after the third round of IVIG. That was her treatment choice that she went with, completely cleared. Another case from the same physician, 50-year-old woman with systemic lupus, antiphospholipid syndrome, progressive painful ulcer down on the leg. Look, you can see the tendon exposed down here. Undermined borders, ulcerated, eventually healed after aggressive therapy, high-dose pulse steroids, and oral cyclosporin. Biopsy proven pyodermic gangrenosum, more common lower extremities than sweets. They thought at the wound clinic that this was a bad infection. They're doing multiple debridements on it and uh, making the lesion larger. Uh, so she says, and when they finally got the right diagnosis, steroids and cyclosporin cleared it. Okay. So uh, lots of things that we can use to, to, to treat with dapsone and colchicine. Again, potassium iodide. But the mainstay is going to be cortisones, prednisone. Now, thalidomide is on here. Any of you ever prescribed thalidomide? You have? Wow, you're a brave soul. Like Dr. Baldwin said, you've got to have a set this big. Now, you know, it's a, put it in, in a male person, right? Postmenopausal female, she says. You know, um, and, that's, and that's the person that you have to be very, you have to be very super cautious because if we think Accutane has a risk of birth defect, then you just, it doesn't touch thalidomide. And this has got a really interesting story. Um, how am I doing on my time? Because I've almost got through, through my two disorders. Okay, five after. I'm going I'm to take a sidebar then. Thalidomide is interesting to me. 
Now, this, you know, post-World War II, it, uh, post-World War II, not just in the United States, but in Europe, people were hooked on, sed- on, on sedatives. Uh, one out of five people in the United States and even greater numbers in Europe were taking AIDS to help them sleep at night because of the trauma of the war that was going on. And thalidomide was launched in Germany. It's a barbiturate, and it was advertised over the counter as the, I'm sorry, it's a non-barbiturate, as the greatest non-barbiturate sedative you can take to help you sleep at night. And it sold in gangbusters. If, it had a, if the stock market was around, this thing would have made a ton of money. And it, uh, and, it, and it just spread all over Europe and then into Asia. Now, what's interesting about it is that when it tried to come over to the U.S. and tried to capture the market to sell in the U.S. as an over-the-counter medicine for, for a sleep aid, the FDA at that time, which is the first administration in the United States, you know, it preceded Homeland Security and all the other ones that are out there. It started in the mid-1800s. But the FDA, the director of the FDA at that time, looked at the data, and she said, I don't think this drug is safe. There's no data out there that proves to me that it's, that it's safe for women in pregnancy. It's not going to affect children. And she disallowed it, much to the embarrassment of the rest of the world saying that she was a bozo, this woman, and for taking that step. Well, lo and behold, about a year or two later, they began to see the massive birth defects that were coming out. And they didn't have the worldwide network we do now to send data and publish things. It'd take a little longer to figure out if a medicine was doing something, right? Because it was pretty widely known at that time. If you get pregnant, don't take anything. It means that's not something that just started in you know, the 1990s. The people, women have known that for the last 200 years. They try to come off of anything because they don't want to have their baby as healthy as possible. So they knew that, but they didn't know the exact effect until an obstetrician in Australia started using thalidomide for morning sickness related to first trimester pregnancy and found out it worked great for it. Almost stopped it completely. Best drug they'd ever seen for, uh, for morning sickness. And then his own babies that he put out a study saying it worked well for it. A year later, he printed a study saying, please stop it because I've now had six of my women be born, uh, have child-born birth defects. So the, what, a, what a feeling to propagate something and, and then also what integrity to go back and report to the world, I've done this wrong and we've got to stop this. So in 1962, um, JFK, uh, nationally on a very prominent level, hit all the papers, pulled forth Frances Odom Kelsey, who I believe at the time was the first female administrator of the FDA, and praised her for keeping this medicine from coming onto U.S. soil. So there were very few reports of birth defects in the United States with this medicine, only through women who had obtained it overseas or had come from overseas with it and had gotten pregnant. And, uh, and she received a... Um, an accommodation from the president from that. There is a STEPS program with this, S-T-E-P-S, which, which stands for a system for thalidomide evaluation and prescribing system. And we talk about being monitored for eye pledge. You want to be monitored, try to write this drug. Because the eye pledge system, they went back and said, hey, we already have one in place for thalidomide. We've had that around for 20 years before eye pledge came on. And they looked at it and said, oh, we can't do that. And so it's supposed to be very, very closely monitored. It's, only, it's really only FDA indicated for leprosy and multiple myeloma, or it's two indications, leprosy and multiple myeloma. Um, but there are folks who see a lot of these patients uh, if they're in a, with severe recalcitrant um, pyodermic gangrenosum, and it works well. It just has to be in the right group, okay? All right, so if you have PG or sweets, good workup is what's key. Thorough history, skin biopsies, blood work, you're looking for uh, malignancies, chest x-ray, mammogram, urinalysis, prostate exam, testicular exam, if you think that they may have an upper respiratory related to their sweet syndrome, a pathogen test, I'll show you what that is, and there's some other things that you're going to find in, in the uh, literature itself. 
Pathogy is kind of like a Kebner phenomenon, but it's a little bit different. If you poke the skin with a direct uh, poke all the way through and through uh, the epidermis and dermis, not just a scratch, like a Kebnerization can be just a scratch, but an actual puncture all the way through to the sub-Q fat, then it can precipitate a lesion of pyodermic gangrenosin to form. And it's called a positive pathogy test. And this is how you do it. Put normally the forearm, sterile needle. You'll see a red bump that comes up in one to two days after the test constitutes a positive test, okay? You can see this sometimes in bachettes. And uh, you can do that. And I'll show you some, some pictures. Then I want to tell you about this, about this guy. This is another patient of, of mine that I have with pyodermic gangrenosum. This is kind of a sad case. This gentleman came in. He's an amputee on his left, below, below the amputation. You're seeing the inside of his right leg. He came in with this lesion. He was referred to me by our local wound clinic. That doesn't help when I point right here, does it? Can you see right there? No, it's right there. Okay. And so he was, uh, he was sent by the wound clinic. And they, too, were doing debridements every three days of this lesion on his leg because they thought it was infectious and not healing, trying to get to regranulate, and it just kept getting bigger and larger. So he came to see me because his mother had seen me. Um, I'm sorry, his brother had seen me. And as the story unfolded, I said, how'd you lose your other leg? You know, I'm just, uh, just curious how it happened because the guy was about 24 years old. Well, he had ulcerative colitis, so it's ulcerative colitis related. I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag on that. He had ulcerative colitis, and he was a hunter, and he was in Michigan in the wintertime hunting, and he was in boots, and he stepped through some ice and fell into this um, frozen um, kind of uh, boggy area, and this cold water came into his boots. He stepped out of it, but he had two miles to walk to get to his car. And he got frostbite on both sides of his legs. Spent two months in the hospital. And it completely healed five years ago. And then these lesions popped up. Okay? And these lesions popped up, and they thought it was infectious. And this is in Michigan. They kept debriding it and debriding it and debriding He showed me pictures that looked exactly like, like this spot here. Until finally it got so large that they amputate his lower leg, okay? He got depressed over it, went into clinical depression. Uh, his, his, uh, his mother and father in Michigan couldn't handle his depression. He moved to Georgia with his brother, and he went in and had another set of lesions. It's always right here where the boot was. I biopsied it. It was pyodermic gangrenosum. He had ulcerative colitis related to that. Maybe it was, maybe it was related. Maybe this is a pathogen-related phenomenon where it was previous injury. It was uh, pyodermic gangrenosum put on high-dose steroids. He'd never been put on steroids for this at all. He'd been on all antibiotics, dendrobrement, the whole time of his treatment. And I never said to him, there's a good chance, I never said this, even though I thought, there's a good chance your other leg had pyodermic gangrenosum and you didn't have to have an amputee, but I would never go there with him. But uh, his leg started to improve, and about three months after me meeting him and seeing his leg get better, uh, he committed suicide and took his own life. And it's just like, you know, so, but... Um, so you just can't, can't win them all with that. But, um, so stretch to the person on your left and right and say, I think I'm going to start clear my Tuesday schedule for all my pyodermic gangrenosin patients, all right? And then this you can say to them, okay, have fun trying that and trying to pay your mortgage because you'll see one per year at most, one every two years. All right, I've just got a few slides. I just want to, just, just to honor uh, Arizzo and Bologna's book, who only had four things in their chapter, I'm going to just quickly show you Bichette's and that inflammatory bowel bypass, okay? Bichette's is interesting, uh, interesting disease, and you're not going to see a ton in good old uh, white boy American, but uh, you're going to see it more in folks of, of ethnicity. 
And as America becomes more of a cultural pot, and, and I've recently moved to Long Island, New York, so I'm seeing a lot more ethnicity than I did in rural Georgia, uh, these diseases are, are, are more prevalent. It's been described for a long time, all the way back to 400 B.C., but it was in 1937 when uh, Bichette, a Turkish dermatologist, first described, described this classic triad of ulcers in the mouth, right, ulcers in the genital area, and then inflammatory response in the uh, eye, uh, uveitis. In the United States, five cases per 100,000. That's how rare it is. Overseas in the Mediterranean region, Middle East, Far East, one in 10,000. Okay, almost always men, almost always men. All right? And it's a more virulent form when it's over there. Causes unknown, maybe related to HSV. Men are affected more often, more severe disease. Look at this data out of Iran that I found. In Iran, the male to female ratio is 24 to 1 out of 1,700 people that they had with it. In Turkey, 16 to 1, okay? So as we deal with, if you have uh, friends or people that you're meeting or patients that have this ethnic background and they're coming in with recurring ulcers, you've got to be thinking about this, okay? All right, almost always in the 30s and 40s when it starts, but it can start at any age. So you have an aphthous ulcer, and lots of us get aphthous ulcers. It's not, that shouldn't necessarily raise your pucker factor. But, you know, they start coming in with more and more aphthous ulcers. Then you may want to, you know, this is where you've got to stop looking at something and start looking for other things. Well, anything, anything below the belt. What's going on down there, man? You got any ulcers down there? Because certainly God doesn't want to tell you anything about that. You've got to find out. Have you had any of these ulcers form on, the, on your scrotum, on your penile shaft, near the head? Because if you get this and this, you better start thinking about bachettes. Okay? If you get two of the three, it's like hand, foot, mouth. You hardly ever see the hand, the foot, and the mouth. You just see two of the three. It's hand or foot or mouth and hand or something along those lines. Same with bachettes. You may not find all three of them. But if you see two of the three, then you're going to have a concern for it. Uveitis, inflammatory, and an ulcer on the side of the tongue. Well, you better start thinking bachettes. Why? Look at this. 74% of untreated, uh, poorly, uh, not diagnosed early, of Israeli patients blind in six to ten years, okay? Forty percent mortality rate is quoted out of these countries where they, they manage this the most. So uh, recognizing this, diagnosing it properly, and beginning treatment in it or getting it into the hands of someone who may do this more than you if there's an academic center near you is really important, okay? It's complex. It's multi-system. It can affect the heart, the lung, and pretty much everything inside the body, Bichette's, he actually suggested that maybe it's induced by HSV. We've got some pretty good data that says maybe it is HIV-induced, I mean HSV-induced, but, but it's not HSV that's causing the ulcer itself, okay? It's just somehow clicking on a, probably a genetic predisposition to have this constitutional multi-system inflammatory disease. Diagnosis, aphidus or ulcers, two or, and two other features. The ulcers have to be at least three times per year, pretty severe, takes a long time to heal, in the mouth, in the tongue, all right? And genital ulcers and or ocular inflammation, cutaneous inflammation, erythema nodosum-like lesions, joint or uh, synovial problems, or a positive pathogen test, okay? We know what that is now, right? Look at this. Do you see this right here? Now, this was hospital-induced positive pathogen tests. I, uh, venous puncture to draw blood here. Venous puncture to draw blood here when they couldn't get the other side. Three days later, positive pathogen test. Unintentional, but that's what came up, right? And this person 
who had this lesion on the scrotum, and when they scoped, had multiple ulcerative lesions inside the colon as well. It's the person with Bichette's. Scarred lesions from previous ulcerations on the side of the scrotum here, where previous ulcers were located. Difficult management, few studies that tell us what's the right thing to use, especially if it's got large internal um, you know, involvement. Lidocaine for the lesions themselves, topical steroids for the lesions themselves. Then you get into oral colchicine, oral dapsone, prednisone, methotrexate, and here's our buddy that you've got to watch out for in the right population. But, of course, this is mostly men that get this disease, so there's no problem with going, going straight ahead with thalidomide. Okay? Prednisone, imuran, cytoxin, cyclosporin, IVIG. Anytime you, you get a disease in dermatology that has that many possible treatments, it means none of them work great. So you have to have a lot of things you can just keep bouncing to to figure out what it is. Bowel bypass, arthritis syndrome. Last one, three slides on this. This is just interesting to me. They've got it in the, in the chapter. And this is something that we may actually see more and more as more and more people are getting this gastric bypass procedure done. What they think happens is that they leave behind, by accident, a blind loop of bowel. And that blind loop of bowel can be a reservoir for bacteria to collect. That bacteria, your body develops an antigen and has an antigenic response to that, which then creates this response we see on the skin and this immune response, which can manifest itself with joint pain, with fever-like symptoms, and then these lesions that almost look like erythema nodosum, but they extend. The difference is it's a person who's had bowel bypass surgery with with EN-like lesions on their lower leg, but they're also on the thigh, up on the hip, on the buttocks, or on the abdomen. They feel like that paniculitic lesion, but you're thinking, this is kind of odd. They come and they go. They last for two or three weeks. They get three or four eruptions per year, and that's what this is. And until you get that loop of bowel cut out, it never goes away. Now, you can put them on prednisone, it gets better, but then they have another round, they, then they erupt again. Put them on antibiotics, think maybe it's infectious, it gets a little better too, but none of those things are curative. And so you get back in touch with the GI doc, and anyone who does a lot of bowel pass surgery knows about this, knows they're going to see this five to ten times in a year, and it's going to probably have to go do something with it, okay? So this is inside your handout. They may have fever and diarrhea, malabsorption problems, and sterile vesicular lesions or EN-like plaques and nodules may present with abdominal distension sometimes, recurrent lesions, but they extend to the upper legs, the buttocks, the hip, and the lower back and the abdomen, where you typically don't see your classic erythema nodosum being isolated below the knees. Revision, oral prednisone, antibiotics. Okay? So in summary... When we talk about, in general, when you see a neutrophilic disorder talk, you're going to think about, and we're going to talk about, neutrophilic infiltrative disorders that are non-infectious, that are primarily found in the dermis when they infiltrate, and do not have significant vasculitis associated with them. Don't just look at this and say, I'm going to put you on prednisone, we're going to make this better. You have to look for everything else that could be the underlying cause. Pretty extensive workup. We think we got a pretty good workup for somebody with a chronic urticaria. Well, it's, this is that workup on steroids. To, when you give someone with sweets and pyrogenic gangrenosis, and they really get run through the mill. And if they don't have insurance, it's a real problematic you know, presentation. You just have to do the best you can. Okay? Sometimes, um, if, you, if you buy your, your pediatric patients with gifts, like, uh, like uh, Dr. Don did this morning with Super Balls that he gave out to every kid who comes in his office, I don't do that, but um, I like the idea. I'm going to start doing that. We just have suckers. But patient came in, saw her on the first visit, 
came back in for warts, came back in. I do all the things he says not to do. You know, I freeze him and I do candida and I do Beetlejuice. You know, I'm going to buy those blades when I get home. So I do all those, you know, hor- horrifically painful things that I try to make better. But at any rate, well, this, this person said, I want to, my daughter drew a picture for you, wants to give it to you. I said, oh, that's so nice. And gave it to me and I gave her a big hug. She gave me this picture for a cardinal. Same day, same day in the afternoon, mother comes in with little Johnny. My son, is, he wants to give you this picture. I told him he shouldn't give it to you, but he wants to give you this picture because he was thinking about today's visit, and he drew this out yesterday for you. So same day I got this picture, okay? <laughs> the kid drew this, you know, this needle, and jab it into his thumb. I said, I'm so glad he thinks so highly of me, you know? <laughs> Where was that lecture three hours ago before I met this kid? So, but this is warts. I'm not sure that little swipe would, would work on that. So... Um, so, as Bob Barker told you, make sure and get your pets neutered, as well as this sign that was in West Virginia, your weird friends and your relatives as well. Anybody have any questions? Um, I like easy questions. I'm not going to talk to you about how did you dose colchicine for PG or how, what, how high should I go with cyclosporin. I can actually tell you about those things. But the fact is, if you get a patient with these things and you're going to co-manage it with someone or on your own, you're going to have to look it up. Uh, it's it, it, it simple as that. Um, but come on up if you do have a question. And thanks for coming to the conference. So. I seem to see a lot of kids with PGs, especially after trauma, like slamming a hand in the door of mm-hmm. the car or something like that. Is it still the same level of worrying kids in terms of the workup and that kind of thing? Good, good question. If you didn't hear a question, when you have a... And when you say kid, can you define how old that you're talking about? I mean, I've seen it in maybe like an eight-year-old. He had okay. it on the head and... I, Honestly, I was trained to always just think that it was status post-trauma okay. that these PGs happen. So this whole, like, can of worms is kind of new right. to me. Well, uh, and first of all, you've got to be real positive that it's a pyogenic gangrenosum lesion it's, itself, right? And it was biopsy confirmed. So, yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's, even that's a tough read in that environment. We don't see PG that much in kids. Uh-huh. So, um, and it, it can be a, a um, trauma, uh, trauma-induced neutrophilic in- infiltrated disorder. It's... But to answer your question, we don't typically do this large workup in the pediatric population. If we had uh, Doogie Hauser back up here and asked him what he does with PG and kids, I'm sure he would say, I treat them with a low-dose prednisone right off the bat if I know it's PG to get the clear topical steroids. If I think it's secondary infected, I'll treat it, and they don't do much more with it. Thank you. And so, and so at what age do you, do you begin the workup? The question is, what age would you start the workup? I don't know if there's a definitive age. It kind of depends on if you're into the lower 20 range. Then we're seeing women with breast cancer in their 20s now. So just logically, if they have family histories of things or any, any other symptoms, you'd want to start the workup. All right. Thanks, guys. God bless.